Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Paul Banks of Interpol, who have a new album coming out, Marauder, on August 24th, and it's uh, a really strong album, and kind of a, a little bit of a departure, produced by Dave Friedman. It's kind of a, it's, it's uh, at this stage in the game, 20 years into the band, and maybe 21, I think, Yeesh. you're doing something new. I mean, good time to try something new, I think. <laughs> you, your band is old enough to drink, finally, yep. at age 21. Wow, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I mean, I think working with a producer was the was the really new. Working to this degree with a producer who was involved since before we got to the studio, um, you know, we were sending him demos as we were writing, and then he was really a part of the, the whole process. And I think that's that's what's really new for us. You know, we've done co-production work with... Uh, with Costi and um, Peter Cadis as well. But this, I think, you know, Fridman, we sort of let him really get his hands dirty with this one. I mean, I think of him as like a little hippie-ish compared to the vibe that I associate with Interpol. How did, how did that kind of work? Um, Sam has been a big fan of, of his work since the, we've recorded our first album. I remember Sam just talking about this guy, Dave Fridman. Uh, Daniel's a big fan of a lot of the albums he's done. I never, I didn't know much about him. I think Daniel and Sam are also sort of Mercury Rev fans, which I guess is, you know, that was his starting point. Dave Friedman was in the band and then started producing the band. I guess along the, when I heard in his resume, there was MGMT. That That's probably the one that stuck out the most for me. And I know he'd worked with Mogwai and, uh, and Flaming Lips. So those are all sort of artists that I felt like I don't get a hippie vibe personally from from them sonically. Maybe maybe personality wise they are, but sonically it felt like I I'm definitely game to work with someone who made those records. And what was he looking to bring out of you guys? Like, what what was the sense that? Uh I think he was into the fact that I think a lot of times artists will come to him with pieces of songs or ideas that are general, and then you work with him to figure out where where's this song going to go, where's, where where these songs going to go. I think he liked in our case that we sort of had all, all of our music already written and we're pretty tech, like uh, you can just sort of set up mics and we'll play the song. And I think that was fun for him to sort of really capture like, okay, well, if you guys can just go into the room and play the song down top to bottom, then let's go straight to tape and let's do things that are very committal and old school in the, in the sense of how you know records used to be made rather than let's just try and get the drums now and then we'll do bass overdubs and then we'll do guitar overdubs later and you can fix everything in Pro Tools in the computer in the box, as they say. Because we were able to just play the songs down, I think he said, well, let's go all in on just purest rock and roll recording techniques and go straight to magnetic tape. So what that means is if you fuck up, you've got to start over. You know, there's no fixing. And if you, you can maybe fit, I think, three takes of a song per side of tape and then you got to get like a new reel out and load the machine up and it's sort of just old school so i think he enjoyed that we were maybe one of the few bands that he's worked with that the songs were in a position where you could just do that and you know frankly your musicianship isn't a place that you can do that because there's a lot of especially younger bands that are so used to the garage band pro tools thing that they really couldn't conceivably do that actually record the album live to tape. I really think that there's a bunch of people who couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was some overdubs, but there was a <laughs> lot of, like, uh, the, the lead single, The Rover, that's just, like, bass and drums or straight down, um, which I think is fun. Like, the, the rhythm section is just a live performance that was done together. Yeah, I was saying before we started that I, I actually, I didn't know that, but I could hear it. Yeah, the tempo moves a lot in The Rover. That song speeds up and slows down in a really organic way. And let's hear The Rover, which is out now. 
Well, since that's the uh, the first song you guys put out, what do you remember about putting that together? Everything from the music to the lyrics, how did it come together? Daniel and I started writing, you know, because Sam lives in Georgia, and so sometimes it's there's not a point in having the whole band together when we first start writing. It's like uh, I was on bass duties and Daniel had the guitar riffs to the song, so we would just get together and I would play bass. And I think uh, before Sam got there, I, I think I might have had a vocal and the bass line done. Um, so I think that was one of the songs that came together really quickly because the bass in the, in the verses is all very simple. And then the vocal thing just came to me pretty quickly, like what the top line was going to be. And then it wasn't, that was one of those lyrics that sort of came up. They just, they really just bubble up sort of from somewhere. I don't really know where it's coming from. And sometimes I don't like them at first blush. And that was one of them where I was sort of like, you know, this really feels right in my mouth. Uh, (laughs) but I don't know. Do I want to write it? You know, is that the song that I want to write right now about like the rover? Like what is, what's that? Uh, Mm. And then I started to look at it conceptually and kind of really enjoyed the idea of exploring like this cult figure, cult leader guy. But yeah, the the initial ideas of a top line melody and, and often like the vocal tag will just sort of, I don't know where it comes from and it's very instantaneous. Now, do you no longer play any guitar in the studio or, or do you sometimes? No, we do. It's, it's like a whole thing. we, we write the bass line first, so there'll be a long period of time where it's just us as a three-piece with me on bass, and then you know we get Sam in and we all start working together. Uh, and then once the bass is really locked in and we know what it is, I, I record the bass to like a click, and then we're sort of obligated to play as a band to a click because the bass is just coming through a, a PA system, and I'll use that time to write guitar parts. So, I mean, by that point, like Sam's got his B. I think it's really it's tough on Sam and Daniel because they wind up having to play a lot of extra takes while we're writing and rehearsing because I'm switching instruments and so then I sort of like square one again. So I think it gets a little little tedious for our boy Sammy sometimes, <laughs> but we got through it. It is fundamentally, I mean, you once actually said, and I'm sure this is one of those quotes, people always give quotes that they say in passing in some interview 10 years earlier and then people throw it in their face over and over again. But there, you had a quote that like, oh, it couldn't be Interpol if a member left. And I'm sure that's oh. thrown to you like every time you do an interview. Yeah, no, actually that hasn't been thrown at me that much, oh, okay. but that's, that's, uh, that's a fair, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. I just, uh, what, I mean, the implication is that we should have disbanded the band when Carlos left. And I kind of just feel like, well, fuck that. <laughs> well, I think you actually went on to say you could be a band, but you wouldn't be Interpol. And I think the truth is you're a different band. I mean, yeah. you, with you on bass, it's literally a different band. The instrumental core changes. And I think with this album, you're you're actually figuring out rather than just like, oh, someone needs to play bass, I'm playing bass. It, it really feels like you're the bass player on this album. And that, that must have been kind of a, a process to get to where you're reshaping the band's sound as, as the bass player. I mean, I feel like it was happening on the last one too. I've, I've played bass on a few records outside of Interpol. So it's, it is something that's sort of been, you know, uh, it's not my first time at the rodeo or now my second time at the rodeo with this record. But it is definitely a new sound. It is definitely a new band. I would agree. I'm not, you know, the same musician as Carlos. And I think I have a different way of interacting with Daniel's chord progressions and I have different instincts rhythmically. But at the same time, there's this tradition within our band of what our sound is that I always try and like that. That's in my mind as well that I, you know, I like how our band sounds. So I I wasn't ever consciously saying like, I want to do something different. It is really simply that like a different musician is going to have a different take on things and a different sound. And fortunately, I think we all like what that sound is. 
the album we released in 2014 was also really strong. And it's interesting to be making good Interpol albums in this era when you're in a different context or in your, or you're in a context of no context possibly where, where it's like there once was, it's like any band that, that continues for a while at the beginning, you're in a scene with peers and you're maybe thinking about what's going on around you in a different way than when it's two decades on and everything's changed in the culture and you're still you. How does, how does it all work in your mind? It's an interesting kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, what, what are we asking? Are we saying like, how do you, how do you keep it fresh or how do you feel this deep into it or whatever? No, I mean, it's sort of like what context do you feel that you're working on? It, it feels mm. like maybe you're just in your own Interpol context, and which is interesting, but I don't know. As opposed to like if it was a really, if there was a big burgeoning rock scene going on and lots of sort of competition, so to speak. Uh, yeah, there isn't that. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't, I, I feel like the context that we look at is probably our own catalog. I think also we all individually draw so much inspiration from so many places and it's not really always about music if even more about music than any other thing that we might expose ourselves to be it books or films or just you know life like sports even I think everything that you're doing is is draw is like food you know fuel to whatever art creative process that you have and then so that's what we go through individually and then you match it up to each other as the three of us in the band and bounce off those individual energies off of each other. And then that generates this new chemistry. And I think that process is just somewhat still self-sustaining where like life is happening to us individually. And then we're bringing those influences to each other as collaborative artists. And that's sort of the fuel that gets us doing what we're doing. And I think that sort of transcends any idea of context. It's really just sort of like, it's fun to make music with these you know, individuals, and it's just kind of like this almost um, organic process. In some early interview, you guys said that you kind of mapped out an ideal career arc. Kissel did. That's <laughs> my name for Dan. Daniel. Dan the Kisslerian mapped it out. Do you remember how your actual arc might relate to the that, that ideal arc mapped out? Well, he predicted the first four albums. He predicted the first, like, what, what the general trajectory would be through four records. Ooh, but I think he got it wrong for the fourth. I think. <laughs> but uh, you know, for the most part, yeah, he had a he had a good. I mean, he had a lot of insight, I think, into indie rock, and then and I think he had a vision as far as like how you could be both very indie and sort of. I don't know how much of model it was, but Fugazi was a big band for Daniel. But I think this idea that you could sort of maintain an indie pedigree and also get a larger fan base and even you know brush up against the mainstream. For me, the model for that was like rem like Ooh, good you, one. you know so yeah but the thing with with a lot of the bands that followed rem is because of the changes in the industry that model of like oh you're you're a beloved indie band and then you're like a gigantic mega world conquering thing the gigantic mega world conquering thing doesn't really quite happen for any band except like maybe coldplay it's not quite mm. the same thing well i think kings kings and arcade fire did pretty well in that trajectory too to an extent yeah yeah but not to the yeah i think yeah. coldplay is maybe the most analogous because they're huge were they ever indie or didn't they start kind of huge did they, they yeah they kind of started they weren't quite indie they, they were they were they were indie-ish in mm. on their first you know on their i'm first told there's a lot of deep tracks that maybe i should revisit on their first record that are you know edgy and and not 
I mean, they, smash hits. They were very much like they were like a guitar band, you know, like back in the day, yeah. you know. And it's, it's uh, but when you guys, you know, did your major label album, there was like kind of that expectation of of like, oh, are you entering like? And you did, you know, and, and you have entered a, a much bigger world. But again, that 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 like biggest thing in the world thing doesn't happen anymore for rock bands. And and was that ever something you expected or were fearing or were thinking about? How how does that work in your head? Yeah, I don't. I don't think it was ever anything. I think it's something that I would like, uh, but it wasn't. I don't. Wasn't something that we planned for or made a you know strategy as far as like how do we get to become the world's most popular band. I think we just write our songs, and I think we had some precedent on the first two records where just songs that we were writing got some radio play and even some sort of commercial rock radio play. So then it was sort of like, well, that's always that's always nice when that happens, but we'll just continue doing what we're doing and, and see if that happens rather than catering what we were trying to write in order to get top 40. I always thought your personal relationship with the spotlight is interesting because you, you've held yourself back in some ways. You held your personality back in the, in the lyrics sometimes you you held your you've managed to be a, a frontman of an enormous rock and roll band without sort of necessarily being out there as a personality how much of that is deliberate how much of that is just the way your personality works how much do you think about that hmm i don't know i think it's just how my personality works and i personally wouldn't say that i've held back my personality in my lyrics but that probably is you know um evidence to the fact that that's just how my personality works well this the lyrics to this record feel a little bit more personal maybe yeah yeah but i don't know if it's held back your personality but there's a certain distance they they don't Mm. necessarily they don't always feel confessional although i could i could probably pick out songs actually that that from the from the past that uh that actually are are actually are really confessional um i mean i guess i also the way i've always looked at it is that they're actually way more deeply honest and or revelatory of my experience than if I were to say like I met a girl named Judy and you know (laughs) we I don't know did this that and the other that that to me feels very interchangeable with other stories whereas I feel like the way that I've done my lyrics is in my mind trying to show as much as possible well I'll actually completely contradict myself and and go to your your probably your most confessional song which is rest my chemistry which someone someone actually put on a list of the 10 best cocaine songs of all time <laughs> cool <laughs> where uh, and that's a great song we should hear that's that great. And I imagine at the time that was relatively autobiographical. Yeah, that was the third record. That was that was a heavy period for me, and that was that was the record where we went, you know, major label and a lot of expectations, a lot of pressures, and a lot of life changes for me. I was sort of reaching a, a precipice that I had to change some things. Uh, so yeah, that was a that was a heavy time. I'm I'm I like that song. I think that song is a good product of that little phase. And I know you sort of became more sober did you become sober sober or just partied less no i I was sober sober yeah yeah still or i don't drink and i don't do anything that isn't sort of green and grows (laughs) (laughs) always a good policy yeah so 
on this album, where were you coming from lyrically? Like, what, what, there's there's this idea of the Marauder. What what's going what's going? It's 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 your most concepty record in in some ways. It seems like. I mean, I think it. I think it it hangs together with that title as as concepty, but it's not all that intentionally concepty. It was just sort of the the Marauder is a character that emerges in a few of the songs. I, I feel like he emerges by name in one song, and then if I look at it as a totality, I realize like, okay, no, that is also the sort of narrator of this one, that one, that one, or this song refers to that that character, and it's really just the kind of um, unmitigated um, id. Which is the animal one? That's is, the one. The, that's the. Uh, that's what that is. Just that that portion of your personality that isn't really concerned with consequences or uh, accountability, and just kind of does. Um, and I feel like that's something that I've um, matured and have more awareness of what's doing with regards to what my motivations are and what I'm comfortable doing and not comfortable doing. But there was a period in my life where I think I just did whatever the <laughs> id wanted, and and that's what the Marauder character is. You guys went on tour last year and, and played your classic debut in its entirety uh, many, many times. What did you take away from, from that? Hmm. Uh, I'm, I have a feeling of great pride and elation most <laughs> nights. Yeah, it was just really, really fun and a total honor to be able to have, have people want to come out and see that piece of music and you know see that it's still cherished by people. It was great. I think it was also good while writing a new record to go back and visit, you know, work that you did a long time ago. I think simultaneously, like almost like a palate cleanse and mm. also, or like, you know, a brain cleanse and, and also like a weirdly motivating thing to kind of like get stuck in on what we were writing. Was PDA kind of the first song that the band had? Yeah. Yeah. PDA, the PDA was, was being played before I even joined the band with, uh, the original drummer and Carlos and Daniel had that song as a as a three piece before I even joined with no vocals and no I, second guitar. I think hearing it kind of drew you into the band, right? You kind of wanted to be in that band. It was when I saw Carlos was in the band also because I'd I'd seen him around college and sort of had I just liked him. I thought you know he was a genuine item of something crazy, and so when I walked into the rehearsal and heard how good it was and that it was yeah. That it was, uh, and you never liked him again. <laughs> no, no, I love Carlos. I love Carlos. I really do. He's great. I mean, there was a like a a personality clash by most accounts. Was the cliche would be like in a rock and roll band? It's like oh, the the personality clash somehow like made the tension that that made the help make the band great. Is there is there any truth to that cliche? No, there was. Uh, I think yes. I think there is. I think there was constant tension. But it wasn't the kind that I felt like, it wasn't like angry. It was just, there was a always, hmm. Yeah, it's just not the same thing as like where you'd leave and say like, that guy's an asshole. It wasn't, it wasn't that kind of tension. It was just sort of, I don't know. I, I always had a fondness that sort of made it okay. But we just, you wouldn't agree on things a lot of the time. And there'd be sort of very obstinate moments in rehearsals and while trying to figure out and map out songs there would just be a lot of disagreements but it wasn't the kind of thing where i would say i hate that guy it was more you know this is a difficult but rewarding process to work with these you know dudes but i think that tension among artists is absolutely you know part of great collaborations i don't think addressing lyrics and detail is necessarily your favorite thing but i always wanted to ask you about like i think one of the most unique rock lyrics of all time is uh, we have 200 couches mm. where, where did that particular image come from if you don't mind 
I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess uh, some sort of vision of a big Brooklyn warehouse rave scene, maybe. We have the answer. Awesome. All right, let's hear that song for a moment. And then, you know, uh, people had an idea of you as sort of, not you personally, but of the band as sort of like humorless. And I think that's, that was purely because of sort of onstage presentation and the album art and maybe not really listening. I mean, there's in, in, uh, in Obstacle 1, there's her stories are boring and stuff. That's really funny. I mean, Thank like, I, I think people somehow looked... Ha- and and that goes like, on. That goes on throughout your career. There's there's, there's oh look, it stops snowing and things like that. And yeah, that, sort of how how serious can that lyric possibly be? Yeah, <laughs> but it it does. I think it does show how people react to a, a surface of the thing. And also, you guys aren't like have never been super smiley on stage and stuff. That's it's just the vibe. Yeah, I mean we're yeah we're, we're I mean I suppose we probably wouldn't be any good if there wasn't dimensions to it. If it was all just serious and dour and gloomy, I think we probably people would be like, "Oh, what a, what a bummer!" I'm, you know, not staying at that party. I think that we have facets. One of the things you always say is that people expect you to name influences, and the ones you actually have aren't the ones that that you actually had. And you know, part of it is you've always been a huge hip hop fan. You worked with RZA recently. I worship RZA, and he's he's incredible to talk to. What, what was what did you learn from him? Uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about music production and the way to look at songs. Um, he's really good at pulling things away from, from songs. So I, I felt like he's got a real magic touch with that, like what to mute and when. Huh. Um, I mean, his talent in... <laughs> that's a very hip-hop, that's a very non-sort of rock and roll thing of thinking, like like what to mute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's good with it. And also just what he generates sort of harmonically and, and within beats and stuff. It's it's He's pretty... He, he is as a... He's a genius. What should we play from that project? Play some Conceal. All right, let's do it. Mm, yeah, I'll take you there. I'll make the most of it. And now, speaking of sort of unexpected influences, uh, you actually saw a Nirvana concert as a kid, I think, in Spain. Yeah. What do you remember about that show? It was in utero, which upon recent revisiting i think is really fine fine record like such a badass album to have made at that point in their career they doubled down on being like grimy and dark and fucking heavy some of my they're my favorite nirvana songs are on that record um but yeah i saw them in a bull rink in madrid spain front row i was like you know a young teenager like just started smoking and so i was like I tried to give Kurt Cobain a cigarette that i put in a little paper airplane <laughs> and it was this cool brand of cigarettes called fortuna <laughs> so yeah i put a cigarette in the airplane and i threw it on stage with a little note like hey kurt have a fortuna and then stayed after the gig i guess and saw like a roadie pick it up and i was like i don't think he took it back there fuck and that was it that was my nirvana story <laughs> i didn't wait around to to meet the band or anything did you kind of learn to play all their songs and, and stuff like that was it a big you know i'm i'm weird like that i actually uh, as soon as i learned how to play i learned how to play like one song which is dream on by aerosmith and then as soon as i learned how to play that and I, just the intro i think you once said just the intro yeah and some of the solo <laughs> i know i think i could have been a better guitar player if i had just stuck with learning other people's songs but i got then i got a book of chords 
And I think once I'd learned like three chords, I just started, I just wanted to write my own stuff. It was way less interesting to me to learn someone else's song. Uh, it was, I just would get bored and want to just write something of my own. So that kind of became what I did. But I think in terms of song craft for anybody out there, you know, learning how to do this, I, w I would recommend learning other people's songs in their entirety because uh, it's really great for song craft. When people kept hitting the Ian Curtis and Joy Division thing, did you ever go back and, and listen more to that to, to just sort of exercise it or, or just to... No. Nah. Because I think the more time passes, the less even the debut sounds anything like that to me. <laughs> like, weirdly. But also, I feel like that's just, you know, I'm, I'm really sensitive and we were really young and it's just not what you want to hear as a, you know, big ego, young musician. But it's, uh, it's not something that I would sort of fight today as far as like what it what, what our music evokes to other people is whatever it evokes to other people that's fine i think you your vocals especially lately are going all different directions you've moved out of that that area that you were in in the beginning i don't know how conscious that was not i mean hopefully not entirely out of that area because there is i mean i think entirely out of the the hollering side of it but um i'm trying to be mindful to keep it all and not get sucked into one particular zone but i i, I am with our third record I, I started i wrote a progression a vocal part that i couldn't sing some days and i i didn't understand why like if i wrote this why can't i sing it you know or like if we'd be rehearsing like i'd get it two takes and then the third take i wouldn't be able to hit the notes and so the producer we worked with on that record suggested i get a, a voice coach and from then once you start learning a little bit of vocal technique i'd sort of like opened up my range and kind of I guess fell in love with the idea of singing from a more technical standpoint and I think that plus just age uh, and sort of finding your own way I think I've definitely you know changed as a singer over the years now I kind of like to you know look at all of it uh, all of my my range and all the registers and all the tonalities that I can create uh, but I definitely don't feel married to or beholden to what I might have been known for in the very early days, because I just kind of look at that as shouting. I really like the opening track of the new album, If You Really Love Nothing. Tell me a, a little bit about how that particular song came together. Um, well, you know, me on bass, Daniel playing the riff, and then I think I wrote the vocal really quickly, uh, just the, the opening verse line, that falsetto, If You Really Love Nothing line. And that was one of those times where that's Daniel's, like, he was crazy about that vocal. And I was sort of... I, I liked it. I liked it fine, but it was it's fun when you know when your bandmate kind of latches on to something. You feel like it's their favorite. So that one came together pretty quick, and then I would sort of sing it in Romulan most of it. Which I don't know if you've heard singers talk about this, where you sing fake words until you find the real ones. Bono calls it Bongolese, yeah. Bongolese, yeah. yeah. I think Matt Sweeney, who's a very who's a do you know Matt Sweeney? I do, yeah. yeah indie rock sort yeah, of New yeah. York institution. He's the one I think I got Romulan from. Mm. But so I did, I had the opening lyric, If You Really Love Nothing, and then it was Romulan until, you know, for, <laughs> for a long time while we mapped out the rest of that song. Uh, I remember when we switched to guitars, it's one of my favorite songs in terms of the guitar interplay between Daniel and I. There's some really fun stuff going on in the courses and the post-courses. And I think that's an album that is a good testament. I don't think there's even keyboards on the final so what you hear on the record is really just two guitars, bass, and drums, and I feel like it, it fills the mix up. You know, there's a lot of harmonic density going on, but with pretty minimal instrumentation, so I'm, I'm proud of that one. And the closing track, It Probably Matters. Tell me about that one, what, what you remember about it. 
that was one I think was one of the cases where Daniel was not even all that it wasn't his favorite of his own you know songs that he introduced it was one that really spoke to me harmonically I thought it was a you know sick riff and um, I think we just tried to keep it I tried to keep it dark and melancholy it just felt like a very you know I don't know very moody atmospheric song um, I don't know what to tell you about that one man <laughs> I tried to be a faithful man. I tried to hide the taste for the anger. I didn't indicate that I care. Are we are we confessing <laughs> there? Yeah, I mean it's 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 a song about what you probably could have done better. Um coulda woulda shoulda and I think how uh I guess the upside of that is you know, okay, well moving forward, you know, now I know that that's this that and the other thing that I did or didn't do probably mattered. And I just like the um there's that part of you when you're sort of walking down the street by yourself you know remembering some part of your life and you know it's like a it's like a very soft light bulb that goes off uh you know i was just like oh huh that probably mattered um that's that that moment of sort of sad (laughs) sad revelation sad subtle revelation that's what that song's about now you took a break uh, between albums. There was when Carlos left. There was a, was there ever a moment in all of this when there was any doubt whether there would be an Interpol, whether whether you guys would continue? Yeah, I think after Carlos left. Yeah, I think that was just we had, we sat down and tried to write songs. But I mean, it probably took one rehearsal with Daniel because I think we got the song anywhere in the first rehearsal, so it was that quickly appeased any doubts because i think once i had a baseline and a vocal idea we kind of knew like all right well you know we still got sam and so if this this song is functioning like this with just a guitar bass and a vocal then you know i guess we still have something so i don't think the doubt lasted very long and it never got too too hairy it was just sort of like let's see let's see what happens sam is kind of uh, an underrated drummer he's amazing secret weapon man yeah yeah he's uh, i mean what's it like to play with someone who's that inventive and that seem it seems it seems like he's he's got some chops going on too. Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's the total total package. He's he's great. He's uh artistic, original, uh innovative as you say and technically very very strong. Also, there's a thing that maybe not everybody knows about drummers is that you can you can play great live, but only some drummers record hmm. well. And I think it has to do with how they I think it can have to do with like um harmonic overtones on the kit like there's a sort of level of sort of a hum that can be created like when you can make a kit sing by certain just i, I don't know how how they do it it's like a but, musicality uh, in your uh, actual touch on the in yeah. the touch it's yeah. it, exactly it's yeah. in the touch and so like some drummers just sound really good being recorded and i think every engineer we've worked with has had a has had a fun time miking and recording sam because he's just he records well as well as being um yeah, he's a funny dude, man. He's a funny guy. We're lucky to have him. I've asked other bands this question. I mean, th- there's some bands who take like four albums to make a good one, and then there's other bands that make a sort of classic debut and then are sometimes like haunted by it or or, or overly defined by it or you guys came in so strong at the beginning. Do you have any thoughts of like why was it partly because you had been around for a while before you actually made the album or what why was it so kind of defined and 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 tight and whatever it ended up being i mean i think because we had six years to write that one that's what i thought yeah. i think you also have so much to prove as a as a your, your first foray into art you know you really the every it's really all guns blazing 
But I think most importantly, as far as being overly defined by a debut, I think, you know, the language didn't exist. And then you come in with this new sort of DNA that never existed in the public before. And so everything you do after that is now, there's no fundamental re like new thing that you're going to bring forward. Like you already put your little fingerprint into the culture. So you, I think it's okay if things don't match up to that first one, because it's sort of natural. Like if it was, if it was a DNA that was already out there, then maybe it wouldn't have been such a big deal the first time. But everything you do after that, it's the same thing like with the director. You know, it's like if they have a particular style, like Quentin Tarantino, like whenever, you know, I don't know. But then again, we do celebrate all of his films, don't we? <laughs> but I, I don't feel bad if, if the first one gets a lot of attention because I kind of feel like, yeah, well, once there was nothing and then there was the, f <laughs> the first one. <laughs> so Lizzie Goodman who we friend of the show, uh, you know, wrote her book, uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom, and it, it reminded us all about what a time and place New York in the uh, first decade of the 2000s was. And I don't know, looking back on it, I mean, first of all, we, we talked about getting soberer and uh, and breaking away from that, you know, from, from the lifestyle of that scene. But, I mean, it seems like there was a lot of sort of benefit and fun and even artistic sort of inspiration from that life you were, that sort of late night li life you were living at the time. Is that wrong to look at it that way? I, I mean, it all felt pretty, it worked. It worked <laughs> then. But I think, you know, if there's a question of like, should one hold on to that as they continue as an artist, I feel like, I don't know. I think I'd rather be alive than dead. Well, the trick is, and listen, a lot of people don't pull it off, is knowing, you know, knowing when to fold them. You know, it's like knowing when, when that that particular path has exhausted itself, whether personally or and or artistically. Well, and, and I I remember clearly feeling like what had what was starting to happen, where it was clearly to me starting to impact my potential, what I believed my potential to be. Whereas I think in the early days, I didn't feel like it was actually. I felt like I had such a Either the lifestyle hadn't caught up to me or I was just so young and full of it that I could handle it all. And then it got to a point where I don't even think it was that I got older. I think it was that the lifestyle was now like, and it'll just keep growing as far as like how much of your life is dedicated to just the partying. And that kept growing. And I realized that it was just going to choke everything out and then there'd be nothing left. So I also kind of feel like it's a cooler look to be my age and sober than my age and fucked up. It's a rare person who can in rock and roll who can it, usually probably have to be either sober or <laughs> or possibly not with us anymore at this point. There's a, there's only a few people who can kind of keep it going. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I might have been able to keep it going, but I took on other things that I wouldn't have been able to do. I think. I mean, I know the lifestyle that I was living. I would not have been able to, you know, do a bunch of shit that I've done in the in the meantime. That that means a lot to me. Who at this point are still your heroes still your role models and then maybe it's not music i don't know hmm that's a good one i mean bowie bowie's one frank black and then you know i don't know i think the rest would probably be outside of music and they would just be people that i sort of draw inspiration from rather than seeing them as kind of role models like i mean there's boxers uh gennady gennadievich golovkin someone that i get inspiration from I watch a lot of film. Um, I'm trying to think if there's, man, I don't know. That's a really good question. 
there's still like authors that have sort of helped define me, like Henry Miller. Right now I'm reading a Bukowski that I hadn't read before called Ham on Rye. And that's very moving, very touching, really heavy book. People like to shit on Bukowski now, you know. Do they? Yeah. He's very very out of very out of fashion. When I was in college they were doing that to Hemingway. And I kind of feel like they probably shit on both of them, but like I don't care. <laughs> I really love Hemingway and I love Bukowski. But what? Well, they they shit on him for what? I think it's just sort of like oh, I don't. I mean, I I would have to channel what the current criticism is, but just you know, it's like some like sort of indulgent male something or other. Mm. You know? <laughs> like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's it's of a time, but yeah. but no, I feel like all those great like I don't know great writers that maybe some of the things that they'd be described as saying would be seemed as misogynistic or out of sync with today's world. Like I get a feeling that you know. Both Bukowski and Miller, for instance, had profound respect and and love for women, even if some of the things that you could quote them as having said would not fly today. Right, even if you could screenshot some shit that would blow up on on Twitter. Yes, <laughs> what a, what a world we live in, the, man. The screenshot, yeah. And we touched on this, but just I think it's interesting being any kind of rock band in 2018. Um, because you know it's it's again in the 2000s it was a rock boom, maybe the last rock boom. And now it, it's just not at the center of things. And, and at the same time, you're a lifelong hip hop fan. And so, I mean, how do you see that? I mean, do, do you see, do you think rock will ever return closer to the center of the culture? Do you think it, it's it's kind of going to be where it is now? Or do, do you think, I oh, mean, because I, 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 I see it, young yeah. bands like Snail Mail and stuff. I'm starting to see actually signs of, of life, but I don't know. Yeah, no, I definitely think rock could sort of come back uh, and take over. Uh, again and i'm you know waiting for the solo i'm waiting for the guitar solo to come back because my whole career it's sort of been you know taboo but i'm i'm ready for somebody <laughs> to start shredding uh and i also feel like i think hip-hop is now changing into something new there's a couple different thoughts i have on that firstly like whether or not hip-hop is changing i just feel like live instruments are as a captivating concert so you know people that have written their own parts that are collectively playing live instruments together is is always really exciting and i think it's more exciting than concerts where it's just a guy on the mic and or backing tracks for instance i think there's just always something special and magical about that so rock always has that going for it then i think rap is just changing so much that who know you know this guy who just died triple x tentacion i was you know learning about him a little bit and his you know in his influences are sort of rock and i remember it was interesting because like some of the i found them to be sort of not super great influences within rock but it was somebody in hip-hop who's sort of citing as as they came up that they listened to these rap artists and these rock artists and then yeah there's a lot of like emo and stuff filtering in yeah, through, mm, exactly, through this, this young exactly. hip-hop it's it's it gets almost confusing like it's, what's going on there well it's, it's just interesting. interesting that that would be yeah. what was gravitated towards for some some of these young artists but that's really cool to me and i feel like that's you know i mean lil wayne should get some credit for like he was trying to pull some guitar solos and stuff on on a record he put out like five six years ago yeah he he was it, it was interesting because he he seemed to have like the worst taste in rock but that's okay you know it's the, like <laughs> you said it not yeah, me yeah yeah and i feel like there is i've jay-z's done some interesting partnerships within rock music where i feel like from where i sit i'm sort of like I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah, like this, also when, not when necessarily rap, the coolest stuff necessarily. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. When rap go, comes, but but it's still cool. At the end of the day, I think it's cool. Uh, I think whatever is cool, and I think that as hip hop, because hip hop has sort of been at the top for a while now, and it's it's changing from you know what it was in the mid '90s. 
So who knows where it, where it'll you know go to, but it's also sort of not necessarily going to be what it what it has been, where it's like the it's the thing and it has nothing to do with rock. I think it could either stop being the thing and rock comes back, or it becomes some new thing with you know this rock influence, or maybe country is going to take over and it'll be that yodeling kid. But yeah, I mean, you know, obviously hip hop is in the place where there's a, a generational gap, you know, and, and, and hip hop fans aren't recognizing what's new as if you've been around a while as it's a lot of the sort of generational debates that were once oh, in rock are now in hip hop. Yeah, you know? this is awesome and hilarious. Yeah. yeah. But no, you mean like old guys shitting on the new stuff? Yeah, basically. Yeah. You just got to be so careful as you get older. You just, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Because I think it's always a bad look to shit on the new stuff. It's like, it really just sort of means like, maybe you don't get it. Like, I don't. Takashi Six Nine as a as a lover of hip hop, it's like oh, I keep hearing this guy's like all over the Billboard's charts. So I should like check out what is this. And I have to admit, the first time I heard it, I was like, I uh, I don't understand what I'm listening to right now. <laughs> then you know, I see enough kind of memes and stuff on Instagram, and and one of his tracks will drop, and I'll I'll get it all of a sudden. I'll like understand that there's like this really visceral thing to the production, and he's got a good scream voice. This guy, you know, what I'm talking about. I do, yeah. His voice breaks up in a good way when he sort of is aggro and like DMX and Beastie Boys had that quality. So I kind of feel like, all right, I'm going to hold off judgment. Or I'm certainly not going to say like it isn't mob deep or anything. I'll, I'll wait and see if I kind of catch up to some of this new stuff, because at least in his case, like I figured it out on some level. And how about pop? I mean, the, do you have any interest? I mean, it's like the guys in Vampire Weekend and stuff go out and collaborate with people and try to write pop songs. And that that's the thing. Is there any part of you that's like, oh, what would, what would it be like if I went out to LA and, and, did a summer in a camp and collaborated with some pop singer, yeah, tried to I mean, write some. I mean, it's fun for the craft of it. Yeah. And I did uh, to some degree, you know, I worked with some, some hit writers with, and I was working with RZA. Um, you know, we worked with uh, Andrew Wyatt and we oh, worked with that. John Horn and we did a collaboration with, um, that was Andrew Wyatt from Florence and the Machine, RZA and I. Um, so anyway, yeah, I would, I would be, I would be game to do that. I don't know if it's really my forte, but I think, uh, it's fun. I think the Vampire Weekend guys are a little different, you know, where they come from songwriting wise. But uh, sure, I would I would give it a whirl. I feel like uh, lyrically, I could help out on a Katy Perry song or something. And finally, how how are you at? Uh, yeah, I'm getting signals. How are you at? at uh, <laughs> I just got a bunch of signals at, with that remark. At playing bass and singing at the same time because that that's that could be tricky. I think it's easier than guitar. And really, so, because yeah. there's a, there's a lot of like I mean, it, a lot of people find it harder basically. Hmm. Yeah. It depends what you're doing on guitar, I guess. Your parts are actually a little more intricate. It, if you're just strumming, it's you know it's it's easier. But some some bass players find it. Even some pro bass players find it impossible to sing at the same time. Huh? Maybe yeah, I don't know. I mean, I also because it's Romulan. A lot of the time that I would be on the bass, you know that that helps a lot. Um, <laughs> but no, I think maybe my my bass style. I think I play bass like a guitar, so I think that makes it easier too. It's it's sort of close to what I'm used to, just less strings. <laughs> So thanks to Paul Banks of Interpol. Interpol's new album, Marauder, is out August 24th. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.